The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Yeah, it's really exciting today. There's so many faces I've seen walk through the door that I haven't seen in a long time. And it just really has this, you feel like you're home, right? Or someone's coming home for Christmas or something. Um, Nick Jones, I saw you. I tried to wave at you. I don't know if you saw that earlier. And uh, I saw Marshall and Ryan Cronk, too. Those are all people that I'm just really overjoyed to see. Not that I'm not overjoyed to see everyone else that's here. I love all of you guys. And if you disappeared, I'd give you the same welcome. But don't disappear, right? Okay, so um, I just want to pray for us this morning. And then we'll jump in. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that we get to come to you, that we get to pursue you, that we get to worship you, because you are so good and so glorious and so worthy of our praise. God, we ask that you'd be with us this morning as we look in your word and Help us to appreciate and love you more. Help us to appreciate and love what you've given us more. Help us to honor you with the things that we have and help us to glorify you with our lives. We thank you and praise you. In your son's name, amen. So our intro this morning as we're wrapping up our sermon series, Life Savings, Where Should I Invest in 2023, is this. The way you spend your money matters to Jesus. Jesus isn't after your money. He is after your heart and knows that the quickest way to find a person's heart is to follow the way they spend their time and resources. In this sermon series, we will learn to invest in what matters most. When I came to the Coffee Oasis in 2009, I didn't come in at a high note. I had just left a position of being a junior high youth director at a local church, and I had been severely hurt. I worked very hard, and I helped the church develop a program and grow from about four kids to about 30 in a year's time. And what was our secret? We rallied around Bible stories. We learned about Jesus and we made it applicable and fun for the people that were taking part in the program. But it wasn't long after that first year that I got pulled into the office of the associate pastor and he said to me, you know, we would like to have more pizza parties and less Bible studies because, you know, the Bible's not what's bringing people to church. To which I responded, pizza parties don't save souls, Jesus does. And I was completely flattened by this. And it probably didn't help that, you know, I came to work every day with like long black hair and I had those big stretched earlobes and kind of had this scruffy, bigger beard. And 
I wore t-shirts that were like these Christian heavy metal shirts that say like, nothing but the blood, and then on the back it would say, devil music for Jesus, or something like that. (laughs) And so their kids are coming home, and they're like, I want to be like Jacob. I want to be like Jacob. Jacob's so cool. I want to be like Jacob. And so one of their fathers was a pastor at the church, and you know, I never heard the end of that. And so I wasn't really building a case of why they would want me there, but I probably said sick way more than any other word, too. <laughs> it shouldn't have shocked me that not long after this experience happened with the pizza parties and that, which he won out in the wrestling match, that I was pulled into the office and I was told that they couldn't afford my salary of $1,000 a month. So I did what any respectable human would do, and I went home and I cut my hair into a nice little faux hawk. I shaved my beard down. I started wearing button-up shirts. I started gussying up my resume, and I was getting ready to hit the road. And at that moment, I came to work, and they said, hey, are you the guy that's taking Jacob's place? And I said, what? And they go, I don't know, man, you look good, but we need to have a meeting here soon. And I was kind of like, that's so odd, right? And so it went about a couple more weeks, and then I was brought back into the office where I was told that they suddenly found my whole year's worth of salary and that they were going to save my job. And they were taking me to men's warehouse to buy all the suits that I needed to wear to kind of fit the bill of what they were doing. And so I think I stuck around for about a year and I kind of put up with that and I, and I lived in that. But the more that I kind of jumped through hula hoops to try to be this person they wanted me to be, I wasn't being who God wanted me to be. And so I realized what he might have been calling me to and what they were doing were two separate things. So that's when I prayed with my wife and after much consideration, I applied to come to the Coffee Oasis. I think it's funny because when you come to a new job, more often than not, you kind of have to unlearn the things that you learned in the job that you had before. You could have a job that's somewhat similar to what you did, but you have to learn the new way of doing things, right? But the last job, that had hurt me so bad that I was certain that I was going to be out of this job before this job even started. That was 13 years ago, by the way. But the difference was, in the two jobs, was if I had a shortcoming in the first job, responsibilities and things were taken away. Here I learned that I could have conversations about my shortcomings, and I didn't have to fear something being taken away. I had more or less someone to come alongside me and say, I want to help you do better. I was offered grace and forgiveness, and I think this came to a head One day I was sitting at Grocery Outlet with Dave Frederick in the old blue Frederick family station wagon. And we're in the car and I said, do you care if I wear this backpack to work? I know it has skulls on the straps, but my last job, and he cut me off so fast and he said, brother, you need to heal. He said, you are not there anymore. He said, that dominated thinking is going to keep you from doing what you need to do here. And he was right, because I couldn't serve the at-risk and homeless youth of Kitsap County if my thoughts were with the hurt, the pain, and the, all that other stuff that I had received at this other place. And my mind was divided, 
And I was kind of conflicted and confused. I couldn't be effective in the new role because I was under an old ruler or the ruler was still having mastery over me. And so I think we're going to find ourselves somewhere similar today in Matthew 6, 19 through, I think I got 24 here. And we're going to read through that whole passage together. And then we're going to focus in on the 24th verse. And then I'm just going to kind of walk you through a few thoughts that I had in relation to that verse. I'm going to break it down sentence by sentence, and we're just going to talk through it. So here we are, Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where... Moss and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And this is where we're going to camp out in this 24th Verse, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can find that also in Luke 16, 13, word for word. And this is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But there's something important that I wanted to point out before we move on, kind of like a little disclaimer, because the word master can be a hard word. And what it's not talking about is captive slavery. Captive slavery is the slavery that we've seen in very evil parts of our history. That is not what this is talking about, nor does the Bible condone captive slavery. So I wanted to say that before we get started here. And it's also important for you to know that being a slave or a servant was actually common during Bible time, and it was voluntary. So it's not coerced, it's not forced. Usually it's a person who had gone to someone that was wealthy with a need. I have to pay for a marriage, or I have to pay for a house. And they're going to make a deal to work for that person in order to pay for those things. The moment that those things were paid off, they could end that relationship. So when we see slave, we think servant, not captive slavery. Almost like employment, just not polished as it is today. I actually laughed as I wrote, as it is today, because I was like, we're still working through some stuff, right? Um, So when we see the word master, we should see boss, ruler, lord, just someone that's over someone, someone who has authority, And in verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. And that's an all-inclusive statement. I thought that was really cool that it says no one. So it doesn't matter if you're like Bill Gates or if you're Charlie Chaplin or whoever you are, you could have as much influence as you want. You could have the best strengths in the world, but you cannot serve two masters. It is virtually impossible. And when I thought of this, what I was thinking about was kind of like a person who goes to work, right? And they have two managers. And both of these managers have ideas and directions for your life. 
And so one's like, hey, I need you to do this. And so you're running and you're doing this thing. But then the other one's like, hey, I need you to do this. And you're running and you're doing this other thing. And you're in a confusion because you don't know which one is more of a priority. And so where you find yourself is kind of in this like middle ground where it's like, if I help this person or do what they've asked of me, I'm stopping this person's wish, desire, hope. So you're serving one excellently and you're dropping the service to the other and then vice versa when you did the other thing. That would be really hard for anyone to tell who your authority or your master was. Am I right? And that's completely frustrating. And I think that's why a lot of places have points of contact to avoid that, right? Because your two shift supervisors would probably have different ideas of what you need to be doing with your time. And I think it's funny because I use people for my example in my story, right? You couldn't tell who my master was when I first came to the Coffee Oasis because I was still living under that former job. I was still living in that. So it was hard to tell. And while that might be a little easier for someone to say, this person's their master, authority, boss, lord, ruler. For some people, it's not a person. It's a thing. It's what holds your heart more than anything. It's that thing that you've built your life around. This person or item would win out in your life against anything. It's where we spend the most of our money, our time, our resources. And I was thinking about different examples of what that might look like. And I came up with some. And one was like our health. If some people saw us, they might say, your health is your God or your master or what rules you. Right? It might be our hobbies. It might be our great possessions or personal wealth. Or our sports teams. I was preaching to myself there. Our talents. It's where we spend our money, energy, and time. And while none of these things in themselves are bad, if any of these things demand all of that from you, that that is where you just can't stop being at all times, then it's probably not hard to decide who your master is. Have you ever heard the statement, if you want to know where, what or who someone serves or what they're about, pay attention to how they spend their money? It's really true. Because our hearts follow where our money goes. It kind of puts money into perspective. So Jesus here in that statement was talking about Two masters. He was talking about God and something else. He was saying, you can't serve two things at the same time. You're going to do one or you're going to do the other. And your lifestyle will paint a picture of what it is that you serve. And so a question I had was, where has your heart been or who are you serving this morning? Where does where you spend your time and money say about who you personally serve? And that led me to the second thing, because you see kind of this relationship of what it is that you're serving, and kind of like this, as you gravitate towards what your master is, and you grow in love for it, you are going to hate something else. Because the next 
sentence says, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Taking directions or directives from two managers or masters would be hard. But it's deeper than that because your devotion to who your master is makes a clear statement to the people that are paying attention about what and who you serve, where your heart is, what you care about most, what you value. And as I was talking with a friend of mine, we kind of came to this conclusion that if you are devoted and you are in love with the things that you've collected for yourself, your money and the possessions and the things that come from that, and that's the only thing that you can think about, then you have a hatred for God. And that sounds strong, but it shows you the values you have and the values God has and how those two things are very different. We place a lot of value in money and possessions. And I read a quote this past week from The Treasure Principle where Randy Alcorn says, have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? No, why? Because you can't take it with you. Our love for things and money and possessions and power cannot love us back. And it stands in contrast to a God who loves us, the things that we want and desire and clamor after and grab at that promise us false hope and say, just one more, just one more, are at odds with a God who says, you are more. I've given you what you need. I provide that for you. I own all of that. I give those things to you. And I think it's funny because we get so happy by all that, right? Whether it's, you know, toys, possessions, all these things. And he said, but even that momentary happiness, do you know where it ends up? It ends up in the landfill. And I'm like, it's such a morbid thought. Because we're enjoying our television set or our new app on our phone. Even our phones are going to end up at the landfill. We spend so much time with our phones. Like, it's crazy. I have things that, like, I used to joke and say, well, that'll be in the liner of my casket. You know what I mean? You can't take it with you. It's that treasure that we're seeking, not on earth, that the moth and the vermin and the rust are destroying. But it's the Treasure in heaven that we're sending out ahead of us, that we are waiting for. Are we serving God, growing in our love and appreciation of him, and growing in distaste for the things of this world? Or are we serving something that continually makes us empty promises and draws us away from the true master? I believe that the people who see God as their master have a very different perspective of money. And that's the last part of verse 24. It says, you cannot serve both God and money. And the perspective that they have is that everything belongs to God in general. It all 
belongs to him already. And they see themselves more as someone who's been gifted something to use. They are borrowing. The word we don't use often is steward. They are not someone who owns what they have received. It's someone who is using it for him and his purposes. I saw Psalm 24, 1. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Right? If we see that, we see everything is God's already, we can't hold on to it so tightly because we know we're just using it for the time that we're here. They recognize that they aren't the owners, that they are merely borrowers. They manage, maintain, and distribute what God has given them. I was reminded kind of of this parable in Luke 19, the parable of the ten minas, where you had a master who was going off to become a king. And the wording here is he entrusts, he doesn't give his servants, ten servants, ten minas. And a mina was three months worth of wages. So ten minas were two to three years worth of wages. And what he said was, take these minas, take my money, and make this work until I return. And so, the, so he goes away, he comes back, and the first servant comes and says, Master, he says, your ten minas have been added by ten minas. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Go take charge of ten cities. And the second one runs and says, your minas have created five more minas. And he says, you take five cities. And the last guy says, the last servant says, uh, here's your mina. I kept it tucked away in a cloth because I was afraid of you because you are a hard man who reaps where he hasn't sown and taken where he hasn't put in. And he said, which I think is incredible, he doesn't admit to the guy's thing. He says, I'm going to use your words to condemn you, you wicked servant. He said, you knew, did you, that I am a man who reaps where I haven't sown and take where I haven't put in? And he said, if you knew that, then why didn't you, in that fear you had, go put it on deposit so I could collect interest? You could tell who master the two servants were because the minute he asked them to do something, they took what he gave them and they went and put it to work. You could tell. That third guy, you couldn't tell because you're kind of like, well, he kind of did what he wanted, ultimately. He kind of sat back. He sat idle. He didn't do anything. He, he, just, he just had it, right? But what I found incredible was that he entrusted. He didn't give. They never saw it as their money. They went and they said when they responded, how did they respond? They said, your minas. Not look at our money. Look at what we did. What is my cut, master? And what did he do for them? And this is the most incredible part of all of it. He says, you take charge of 10 cities. You take charge of five cities, my good and faithful servant. They didn't receive from that wealth that moment. He gave them positions of prominence in this kingdom that was coming, which I can assure you had better wealth than the 10 minas that they went and played with. So I think what Jesus was doing was he was trying to tell a story about, I'm going to give you guys stuff, and I expect you to do work while I'm gone. And when I come back, I want to see that you guys are working for my good and my glory so that people come to know me and come to my kingdom. And what we're looking for is the treasure in the kingdom, 
right? The same, kind of the same idea. Anyways, it made me think of another story, and I don't mean to pick on people, um, but it's people realizing that what they have were gifts given to them by God that then take those gifts and use them for his purpose, right? And they get joy out of being able to serve God. I borrowed a book a couple years ago from Cindy Frederick, and it was a missionary biography that I was reading to my kids. And I was reading it to them. I think I probably had a coffee stain on it. You know, when you put a book on a coffee table and you put it. And then I bent the cover. It doesn't get worse than that. I just, I feel icky, you know. And so anyways, I was starting to devise a scheme in my head about buying a new one so that Cindy would never know what happened to her biography. So I went up to Cindy and I, I just, one day I was just eating me away with guilt. And I said, Cindy, I really want to give your book back, but I want to warn you that I bent the cover, I spilled coffee on it, and, you know, I can buy you a new one, or whatever it was that I said. And Cindy said, no, just give it back. She's like, it means it was enjoyed, and it was was read. And she goes, give it back. It's fine. I'm not upset. And she wasn't, because Cindy didn't see this book as her book. She saw it as a way to bless other people as they grow and develop a better relationship with the Lord. She was a steward of the book. And I love that. How much different would our community be if we saw what had been given to us as a way to bless other people, to honor God in a way not to honor ourselves, that we find maybe a a great income to live off of, but with the extra, that we don't think of the bells and whistles, but we think about what God wants to do with the extra because it's his money. He owns it. He owns the world and everything in it and all of us people for his cause. It would be transformative. And I think we would experience a glimpse of the treasure that we're going to receive in heaven. So I hope you enjoyed this sermon series. And I hope you think about where you plan to invest in 2023. One great way to start that, because we're still in January, is you go to the back and you grab a copy of the Treasure Principle. That is a gift from us to you. There's four copies. If anybody wants a copy and you don't have one and they're gone before you get back there, we would happily order one for you. We want you to be able to have that at no cost. I've been incredibly blessed and convicted by reading this book. As an application of reading this book, I'm planning to contact a children's hospital in Buffalo for cancer patients and see if I can send a bunch of my Buffalo Bills hats there. I have like a collection of 200 hats. And that's a practical way to give back. You know, it isn't always about money. It's time, energy, resources. But I really want to give that stuff away. Um, Second, after you've read the book, commit to the principles and think of opportunities you have to bless other people. Third, don't beat yourself up. Offer yourself grace and forgiveness. We have to unlearn habits just as much as we learn habits. And so find somebody that cares about you, that cares about these principles, that will cheer you on as you make changes. Because that's what we're supposed to do for each other when we become convicted on something. In closing this morning, Jesus cares about how you spend your money. However, Jesus isn't after your money. He's after your heart. A heart that is for Jesus will know who their master is. And while they grow in love for him, 
they will realize what it is that he values. They will suddenly see everything that they've been given as a gift to honor him with rather than as something to stockpile and hoard for themselves. Pray with me this morning. Father, we just thank you so much for this morning. And we affirm that we desire you to be our master, God, that we wouldn't hold on to the things of this world, but that we would cling to you and what you want to do. God, that we would see money as not our money, but as your money for your purposes. God, help us to think of you first and foremost. Show us where to invest this year, God. Help us to seek the treasures that we are hopefully storing up for ourselves in heaven and not for treasures here on earth. Help our eyes to be clear that they would be a lamp, God. We just ask that you be with us. In your name.